I don't know about you, but the last couple of weeks I have been troubled. I've been troubled for a couple of different reasons, and they all come together this morning as we look at the passage that we're going to take a look at. But in the process of the last couple of weeks, there were three events, three ideas, three thoughts that I observed that really began to work their way inside of my thinking in my heart. One was this passage. We don't have time this morning to read all the way through chapter 24 through 27. But if you did read through, and if you took time to understand the back and forth that is going on, it's a passage that speaks much to the political upheaval, the social upheaval that we've seen over the last several weeks. And so that was in my thinking. The second thing that was in my thinking is kind of, I was going through this week and thinking about what was happening. It was just the turmoil, the uproar. Um, the back and forth, the, the mob response, the, the my side, your side, the divisions that just seem to exist within our nation at the moment. But the third thing really got me. I'm not sure who said it, and I'm not sure where I heard it, for the very first time. But I've heard it several times, especially over the last four or five days. Somebody described what we are seeing in our nation as a cold civil war. No shots, no cannons, no men lined up against each other firing muskets. But there is a battle going on. And the reason why that third statement so impacted me is because of something that I remember several months ago, or actually a year or so ago, thinking through the whole issue of racism, one of the things that I could not get out of my head was how the church responded back in the mid-1800s. When you read the history of our nation, you will come to discover that many within our nation chose to see the church and scripture as absolutely irrelevant after the Civil War. And the idea was if the church can't even speak to one of the greatest travesties, one of the greatest moral failures of our nation, what good is it? There was a rise of secularism that began after the Civil War, continued through the 1800s with the movement towards liberalism, and sort of peaked in the 1960s with the whole God is dead movement. That bothered me. 
when I was reading that history and thought, boy, the church really failed. I think it failed on two levels. One, some within the church failed because of their silence. They said nothing. There was no moral outcry in way too many churches. The other way that the church failed is to be complicit. To align themselves in a way that did not demonstrate the truths and the realities of the word of God. And as a result, they were rightly and continue to be those that held those views morally condemned. Now, it is true that the abolition movement, the whole movement against slavery, came out of the church. But too much of the church failed. Isaiah chapter 24 through 27 speaks of the issue. The issue of 1861 and the the issue of of 2018. And it challenges us. It calls us to a response. When you read Isaiah chapter 24 through 27, there is this continual back and forth. You saw it in the slides in the passage that John read. There's that first passage in Isaiah 24 where there's this darkness about the passages. It talks about the, the, the consequences of man's foolishness and the inevitable desolation and destruction that comes as a result. But the other side is found in the passages that John read out of Isaiah chapter 25 and 26. And that is in the midst of this absolute darkness, in the midst of this absolute gloom, there is a hope. There is a certainty. There is an assurance. There is a declaration that God is moving all things according to his purpose, and he is moving all things to accomplish his desire for this earth and this world and his people. That double theme is a theme that I found myself thinking about all week long. It's interesting that the the seminar that Robin and Jean our teaching is called darkness and light. Because that's exactly what Isaiah chapter 24 through 27 does. It says, here's the darkness and the light. And here's how they ought to interact. Isaiah chapter 24 through 27 has two themes in it. The first theme deals with what Isaiah calls the city, the ruthless city. Sometimes he calls it the earth. And the idea is that there is a city of man that represents the foundation upon which 
Humanity tends to build their lives away from God. And God says, that city of man exists. But right alongside it, Isaiah will talk about another city. He calls it the city. Sometimes he calls it the mountain. And it's reference to the fact that Jerusalem is built on the top of a mountain. And throughout this passage, he's contrasting the city of man with the city of God. He's contrasting the earth with the mountain. He's contrasting that which is lived in denial of the holiness and sovereignty of God and that which is lived in understanding and submission to the holiness and sovereignty of God. And it becomes literally the tale of two cities. Isaiah spends a lot of time in these four chapters talking about how the city of man and how the city of God are to interact with each other. And the basic principle is this. The city of man should have no influence on the city of God. It should not be able to invade. It should not be able to manipulate and control and direct. But the city of God is to constantly be about influencing and impacting the city of man. And so as we saw all the events taking place this week and all that we saw on the news and everything else very much was a representation of the city of man. I want to ask the question, how does the city of God respond? How do we react? How do we involve ourselves? How do we avoid being what the church was during the first civil war? How do we respond in the midst of this cold civil war? And as I was thinking about that, the the passage in Isaiah basically says this, we must, we must represent the city of God in all that is taking place, and in all that is going on around us, and whether it be a political reality, whether it be a cultural reality, whether it be, you know, family realities, in all situations, what Isaiah calls us to do, what God's Word calls us to do, is to represent the city of God while we are inhabiting, while we live in the midst of this city of man. Jesus says we are in the world, but we're not of it. In addressing this, I don't want to preach hard and I don't want to be real strongly passionate. But I just want us to think, what are the implications of God's word 
as we involve ourselves with what surrounds us. Now, the first thing we understand as we come to Isaiah chapter 24 through 27 is we are told the tale of two cities. Two different realities that exist within creation. And as you read down through there, you'll read about the city of man, again, sometimes called the earth, which is inhabited by those who ally themselves together in denial of God's sovereignty and will. No specific city is being talked about. Isaiah is not talking about Babylon. He's not talking about Thebes in Egypt. He's not talking about Nineveh in, in Assyria. He's not talking about Damascus in Syria. But rather he's talking about what that mindset is that invades all of those cities. And it's a mindset that says God is not sovereign. We are not accountable to him. We will live according to our own standards in in sometimes opposition, but always in denial of God's sovereignty and will. The question of the city of man is not what would God have me, but rather what would I have? And so Isaiah talks about it. He talks about what's going on in that city. And that was the passage there in Isaiah chapter 24 when he says, The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled. Why? Here's the problem. Why does the city of man always end up in desolation and destruction? Why does it always end up in in devastating results? And Isaiah said, here are the three reasons. First, the city of man will move in opposition to the laws of God and disobey the principles of God. Secondly, They will violate God's statutes. And thirdly, they will break the everlasting covenant. Now, understanding that everlasting covenant is important. It's not talking about Israel. It's not talking about, you know, the the covenant of Sinai when he came to Moses and Moses brought the covenant down to the people and they agreed with it. He's not talking about the new covenant. He's not talking about the old covenant. He's talking about that sense that in God, God has placed a sense of his reality in all of mankind. And Romans talks about it this way. He talks about the law written on the hearts of men. There's a general sense of fairness. There's a general sense of rightness, unless they work against it, that is a part of what we do. We understand we don't steal from each other. We understand we don't lie to each other. We understand those things. It's God's law written on our hearts. It's his covenant written on our hearts where God says, I long to be in relationship with my creation. And God invites us to do that. The city of man will reject it. The theme song of the city of man is the Frank Sinatra song. I'll do it. Thank you. I'll do it my way. 
And as a result, the inevitable consequences of living in that way will see the disintegration of God's design and purpose for mankind. What's interesting, what Isaiah does is the inevitable end of this city is desolation and destruction. And it's so interesting because he expresses it in a song. The city of man sings a certain song and the city of God sings a certain song. And the city of man, the song is the song of silence. There's nothing to rejoice about. If we choose to live lives in opposition to God's sovereignty and God's will, it doesn't mean that at all times, at all places, we will feel sad and desolate, but it means that's where it will end up. Empty. It will disintegrate. And the problem with humans is there is always, in all that humanity does apart from God, those seeds of destruction that will eventually grow. But there's another city that Isaiah talks about. He talks about, let me go back just to Isaiah chapter 24, verses 8 and 9, that talk about the end of that song. He says, the gaiety of the tambourine is still, the noise of the revelers have stopped, the joyful heart is silent, no longer do they drink wine and, and with a song, or, or, and the beer has become bitter. There's no more celebration. To look at the world through human eyes alone is to be in despair. We do understand that the, the, the solution to the problems we face as a society and a nation is not politics, is not education, though education is important is not finances. The only hope for any people is a dependence and a recognition on God and of his sovereignty. And so Isaiah speaks of another city. He calls it the city. (laughs) That's profound. Or the mountain, meaning the city of Zion, the Mount Zion, the city built on a hill. He's, he's talking about Jerusalem, that place in the Old Testament where God dwelt. By the way, God doesn't dwell in a city anymore. He dwells among his people. But they have the same responsibility to be the representative of God in the midst of the darkness of the world. The city of God is inhabited by those who ally themselves, come together, like here. We gather together. Why? We gather together in order to demonstrate and declare our trust and submission on the sovereign will of God, and we wait together for God's deliverance because we know it is coming. Even if things get darker, we still know God's deliverance is coming. Why? Because he promises it. All throughout that book, those chapters in Isaiah, where he speaks about the hope that is coming, the certainty of God's victory, all of those things. And in the midst of that, 
We're to sing the song of the city of God. And so he declares that the, the determined end of the city of God, what God has planned for his people, what God has planned for that nation that represents him. I'm not talking about the United States. I'm talking about Peter, where Peter calls the church, the body of Christ, a holy nation. That the determined end of the city of God is justice and joy and peace. Shalom. Someone was telling me this week that they, they, had, they saw a bumper sticker that said, Shalom, y'all. <laughs> Love it. If you find it, I'll pay you for it. That's where we're going. And somehow in the midst of the city of man, we need to sing our song. We need to find ways to live out our song. The passage that John read in Isaiah chapter 26 speaks about that. In that day when the Lord returns, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvations its wall and rampart. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord, the Lord is the rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays lofty city. Uh, lofty cities low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. It is the very ones that are oppressed that become the means of bringing about its destruction. Somehow we're to sing this song. We're to take the song and move out into that world and proclaim that there is a new day coming and that we can depend now on our God who keeps us in peace knowing that the day of ultimate fulfillment and victory is yet to come. But those who are a part of that city of God have a responsibility. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 26. I'm sorry, I don't have the page number for the Pew Bibles. But in talking about their responsibility, the city of God in the Old Testament failed, and they failed in what God called them to do. Listen to what God called them to do when they say, this is our failure. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to the people of the world. I love the new NIV translation of that last phrase. It says this, we have not given life. We have not brought life to the world. Those who are part of the city of God are called upon to bring life and salvation 
to the city of man. We're to sing our song of life and hope and peace in the midst of that city of man. But the question becomes, what does that look like? What does it look like to bring the message of the city of God to city men? Does it mean I'm part of this political party or that political party or I choose to have this ideology or have that ideology? Does it mean I put this bumper sticker on my car or that bumper sticker on my car? Does it mean I need to go to this blog situation or post this? What does it mean? What does it look like? So this week I was thinking and talked to even some here, not even, but talked to some in the congregation that, you know, that I respect sort of their thoughts and ideas and, and got some feedback. I, I uh, went and, and read and listened to the Pope of Evangelicalism, better known as Tim Keller. Um, that's a joke, by the way. Um, to see what he thought about this. He had an article and he had a, uh, an interview about it. I, and, but primarily went to the Word of God and asked the question this. In the midst of the Cold Civil War, what does it look like to accurately represent the city of God? What are you and I called on to do? For you see, we need to respond. We can't be silent. I'll tell you what really bothered me this week. I get all these different things from all these Christian posts and I look at them in different articles. I was amazed at the absence of responses to what we were seeing. From a Christian perspective. And I thought, are we falling into that trap again? The trap that fails to respond, that fail, fails to think through what, what do we do? I'm afraid we get caught up in the frenzy of a, any particular ideology or any particular political idea or thought. God says that's not what ought to control us. What needs to control us is what does God's word say? Tim Keller said it this way. A great article. It's part of a book, uh, but the article is entitled How Do Christians Fit into a Two-Party System? They Don't. Do you know why? Because any ideology based primarily upon the thinking of man has elements of error in it. And we need to be prophets on, if you want, both sides of the political reality. Tim Keller said this, those who avoid all political discussions are, and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what they would now call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. 
not to be political, is to be political. We don't need to be silent. When the conversation, it was so incredible this week. I ate, I was out to eat different places three different times. And I was listening to, you know, I was by myself in these three times, and I was listening to the conversations around me. Do you know what they were about? They were all about the political events that were taking place. I haven't heard that kind of reaction since 9-11, where everybody was talking about it. And so I began to ask the question, what are some of the biblical principles we need to bring in and in the ways that we respond? And these are some that I came up with. It's not a complete list. I bring this to you not as thus saith the elder or the pastor. I bring these to you saying these are some thoughts that came to mind. The first response is this, that we need to represent the kingdom of God with humility knowing the limits of our knowledge and authority. Can we please admit we don't really know what happened and what's going on? If you know me, you know I'm a politiophile. I I do enjoy watching politics, not what it's become. I'm afraid it's moved from Olympic wrestling to professional wrestling. It's a joke. But one of the things I know is I don't really know what's going on. I am also a news junkie. But I know that every news story I I hear is slanted by the finances or the politics of the people involved. I don't have the information to make a decision, and neither do you. Please stop standing up and declaring as if you really know what happened or what's going on. We just simply don't have the information. But also, we don't have the authority. We're not called to adjudicate. We're not called to make a decision on on truth or error. We're not called in the midst of the situation, in the midst of you know Dr. Ford and, and, and Judge Kavanaugh. We are not called upon to adjudicate that. So why are we so hyped up about it? Why do we act as though somehow our word means anything in the midst of it? Now our vote will, and we may need to decide how we're going to vote based on what we've seen, but we don't adjudicate it. And be so thankful. I have been in situations where I heard he said, she said, and I had to adjudicate. I had to decide which was true, which wasn't, because there were consequences and there were penalties that were about to take place. But thank God we're not in that position now. So stop acting like we are. Let's be humble. I don't know. I may have my thoughts, but I don't know and I'm not called to know. We need to be humble. We need to be humble in the way we talk about this. Listening to some of those conversations in the restaurant, 
I would hear people pontificate and think, you know what? You have no idea what you're talking about. My background is counseling. Before I became a pastor, I ran a, a, a counseling center. I have you know, degrees in counseling. And when I hear people talk about memory and what comes and what doesn't, I think you have no idea what you're talking about. Let's admit to that. And let's stop being so overwhelmed and overwhelming in what we do. We don't have the authority or the responsibility. The city of God in the midst of this is represented with trust in the sovereignty of God. I mentioned this two weeks ago, and I heard it again this week. If this nomination goes through, it's the end of life as we know it. If this nomination doesn't go through, it's the end of life as we know it. You know, our only hope is that this happens. And my response is to say, no, it's not. I think I have a sovereign God who isn't surprised by this, who didn't say, I didn't see that coming. God knows. And I don't know which political party might come into ascendancy or which political party might descend. I don't know what's going to happen in the next election. But here's what I do know. None of it will knock God off his throne. So why are we so vehement about it? Why do we act as though somehow our very existence depends on it? And I'll tell you why. Because too often we've made politics and those kinds of things a God. Our security does not rest in a political ideology or a political party or a particular candidate or a particular result. We rest in God. And that's what, again, we don't have time, but please, if you get a chance, read through Isaiah 24 through 27 and see how many times Isaiah says, the people of God, the city of God, trusts, 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 knowing God will deliver. Now, there may be times of darkness and light that we have to face, but God is faithful. And those that put their mind, their focus on him will live in what? Perfect peace. Thirdly, we need to represent the city of God with honest repentance since the church has been so wrong on this issue for so long. Whether you speak of Protestant churches or Catholic churches. The issue of sexual victimization has been one that has not been handled well. Three ways I think that is true. First of all, I think it's true that we have failed to believe the victims. And yes, I chose a word there that I know is controversial. I chose the word believe. 
when we're not called to adjudicate, when we're simply called alongside someone who has been that victim, who has been damaged, who has been hurt, we move into that situation accepting and receiving the story that they are telling in order to come alongside, to bring in the midst of that pain and that hurt and that confusion and all that goes along with it, to bring the healing of God's word into that situation. And so I'm sitting with that person and I'm accepting their story and I'm helping them walk through the the self-contempt that is so much a part of that that kind of experience in a person's life. To work through the, the, the guilt, the misplaced guilt that is so much a part of that person's life. To walk through the issues of self-image that are so much a part of that kind of situation in a person's life. To walk through and understand what it means to forgive, not necessarily to be vulnerable, but to forgive in the midst of that. I need to accept that story and listen and interact. I'm not asked to adjudicate it. I'm asked to care about the person who God has brought into my life and stand with them. We'll talk about collaboration and other things later. But when we're in the midst as a pastor, someone comes into my office and says, Pastor, I need to talk about something in my life. My purpose at that moment is in no way to determine whether or not these things are accurate. It's to say, I want to walk with you and through you. And in the process of shepherding, that's my responsibility. That's your responsibility. We have failed to protect and instruct the innocent. Too often we blame the victim. Too often we say, if they just hadn't done this or done that, if somebody is the victim of sexual assault, the responsibility is on the one who did the assault. Period. I have seen situations in which women were excoriated and they did nothing. We need to admit that too often sexism and our attitude towards women has been wrong and we have failed to protect. We have failed to take the steps because it may be uncomfortable to say these are what we require in order that we might protect our children, protect our women, protect anyone from this kind of victimization. And then we need to repent because we have failed to hold accountable the perpetrators. I know this in the realm of my own family where there was sexual assault of an immense degree. And the person who was involved is still in the ministry. That's wrong. And as a result, the church has lost its prophetic voice. But as individuals, we can speak. Representing the city of God means that we are consistent in our acknowledgement of the imago Dei, the, the image of God that is in everyone. And so in the midst, there was a wonderful phrase that was used by by um, Representative or, or Senator Collins this week, where she said, the greater the emotion, 
the greater the danger of injustice. And so we need to be certain that the image of God, that every person receives our respect, that we respect their value as a person. And so as a result, we we condemn acts and strategies of personal destruction. Whether you believe Dr. Ford or not, whether you believe Judge Kavanaugh or not, when somebody comes forward and all you seek to do is to find ways to throw mud on them in order that their story can be destroyed, that is wrong. And it was done to both. I've seen it in the church where we try to build paper on somebody in order to push them away. And we fail to be committed to avoiding that kind of personal destruction. We represent the image day by maintaining our commitment to justice and truth for all. We stay committed to the image Imagia day by being dignified in our conversation in social media. Beloved, let me ask you a question. The things you posted this week, if you or someone in this church was the victim of sexual assault and they read your post, would they be more likely to share or less likely to share? Would they feel like you were being respectful or disrespectful? Would they feel like you're willing to listen honestly to the truth and provide justice for all? Or are you caught up in the mindset of the mob or in a political ideology? The image of God, the fact that all are created in the image of God requires that there is a equality in our response. And then finally, the city of God is represented by the ability to be redeemed. And I want to be very careful here. Somebody has used and abused somebody else simply saying, I'm sorry, is insufficient. That is one small aspect of redemption. In the body of Christ, we we believe in redemption, but it's redemption, first of all, that involves recognition. I recognize the hurt and the damage I have brought in to the life and the lives of other people, and I acknowledge that. It involves repentance. Yes, I am sorry. This was wrong. This should have never happened. It involves restitution. Where possible to move towards making things right. And then the last one. It involves reform. And that can be a long process. 
at Faith, I was involved in a situation where we discovered that somebody was abusing two teenagers in our church. They were not a part of the church staff. We had to deal with it. We excommunicated the person. We turned it over to the authorities. We allowed the judges and the police to get involved. About a year and a half later, after all this took place, the person came back and said, I want to return to the church. And we realized as we were discussing, this person had never really been reformed. Part of coming back to the church was just to re-victimize the people that they had already used. We had to make an adjudication. An adjudication on what do we believe and who's at fault and, and is there repentance here and what are the consequences. And beloved, we prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and I don't know if we made the right decision or not. When it comes to the story, we believe. When it comes to the process of reform, that's the place of collaboration. That's the place of determining, you know, character and all the rest. We understand that repentance may involve a communal accountability. I want to tell you some of my beliefs. I believe if a pastor in any way abuses somebody in their congregation financially, sexually, any way, they are done with the ministry for the rest of their life as a pastor. I believe that somebody who has abused children as an adult will never work in children's ministry ever, 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 ever again. There needs to be a process of reform and sometimes there are consequences. That's where we bring collaboration and, you know, because we're making a very serious decision. But, but beloved, Most of the time, that's not your decision or mine. I believe we are called upon to bring the message of the city of God into the city of man. I believe those five things are necessary and a part of it. And I believe we need to be praying as people of God that he would show us wisdom to know how we respond, not so much as a church, We have failed as a church. It's difficult for the church to speak into our society, but as individual members and representatives of the city of God, to bring the city of God into the city of man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom that is found in Scripture. Father, may we be those who respond well to what we see around us. Father, thank you that we are part of the city of God because of our faith and trust in your Son. Thank you that because of that, your Spirit dwells inside of us, in each one of us, corporately and individually. Father, we pray that we would be people of wisdom, people of grace, people of righteousness, And may we be those that speak well to the city of man that surrounds us for your glory and for your honor. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.